Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. The purpose of the 1619 Project, as stated by the New York Times, is to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of Black Americans at the very center of our national narrative. 1619 is the year a ship called the White Lion landed near the English colony of Jamestown, bringing with it more than 20 enslaved people from Africa. This happened one year before the Mayflower arrived at Plymouth Rock. The 1619 Project starts with this important piece of history, and through a series of essays, it demonstrates how the foundations of inequality in the United States have persisted through our history in law and imprisonment, income inequality, health care, culture, and more. It also highlights many of the untold stories and accomplishments of Black Americans. The project was the brainchild of journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones. She won a Pulitzer Prize for her work, and the 1619 Project has continued to evolve. It started as a special issue of the New York Times Magazine, a website, and a podcast. It became a curriculum developed in conjunction with the Pulitzer Center. It's a book now in paperback, a children's book, and a Hulu docuseries produced by Oprah Winfrey is in progress. Many journalists, historians, poets, artists, and others have contributed along the way. The project also found itself on the front lines of today's politically charged culture wars, and Hannah Jones herself has been a personal target. Award-winning journalist, author, and professor Nicole Hannah-Jones will be giving the 2022 Manat Phelps Lecture in Political Science at Stevens Auditorium at Iowa State University in Ames on November 2nd at 6 p.m. The lecture is free and open to the public. Today, we're going to listen back to my conversation with Hannah Jones from November of 2021, when she was launching her book tour for the 1619 Project. She spoke to me before her visit to her alma mater, Waterloo West High School. Nicole Hannah Jones, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. And it feels hard to believe that there are still a lot of people who aren't really familiar with the 1619 Project and many others who've heard the name 1619 Project, but don't really understand what it's about. So as you have just now published this book version of the project, tell me a little bit about what you were hoping when you first launched this project with telling the story of that ship that landed in 1619? Well, when I um, created the project, my hope was to, one, just um, put the year 1619 into the national lexicon. It was a date that had largely been erased from historical memory. It wasn't a date that school children regularly learned or uh, that most Americans knew. And yet I believe that it is one of the most foundational dates in American history because um, the decision 400 years ago to purchase enslaved Africans would shape so much about the country that would come. It would be a factor in the American Revolution. It would be a factor, um, you know, in how our country nearly uh, dissolved during the Civil War. Um, Some of our worst societal tensions that we see now go back to that moment. Um, So I really wanted to um, bring that 
that date kind of out of the obscurity of history. And then I wanted uh, to, through a series of essays, uh, show how that legacy of, of a foundational American institution continues to shape the society that we live in, in very many ways, even though we don't often realize it. So there's essays on capitalism and, and uh, American capitalism roots in slavery, on um, traffic patterns and how that goes back to the anti-Blackness that develops out of slavery. Everything from you know why Americans consume so much sugar to democracy itself. Um, and it was just a way uh, for us to understand that uh, an institution that was practiced in this country for 250 years um, still shapes so much about our society, even though we don't know it. The book version has just been released, and it is, as I mentioned, it's continued to evolve. So the book version is is larger and deeper and includes essays from many other contributors. It also includes photographs and poetry and short essays or even pieces of fiction. Tell me about your vision for this book. Well, you know, this book um, had to be broad. Um, It had to really, to me, if you are going to try to encapsulate a 400-year story in one text, um, then it has to come at that story from many different um, entry points. So there are photos. um, And the photos are archival photos of regular Black Americans through time. Some go all the way back to the invention of uh, the camera. all the way to the present. And each one of those photos is a reminder before you start each essay that everything that we're talking about is not abstract, that uh, these horrors um, were done to human beings uh, and that these were human beings who had the same wants, hopes, desires, loves, pains as anyone else. Then we also have um, more than 30 pieces of fiction short fiction and poetry and what is a literary timeline. So uh, they are some of the nation's greatest writers who are reimagining these different points in in the history of America involving Black Americans. And then, of course, there are the essays, most of them written by uh, historians and uh, the others written by journalists. And so I say that this book is uh, a testament and a testimony. So it is a testament to uh, the resiliency of Black Americans and that out of that first original 20 to 30, uh, we now have more than 30 million um, descendants of American slavery, and they have indelibly shaped this country. And it is, um, you know, it is a testimony to how much of a force both slavery and Black resistance has been in uh, the American narrative. From the very beginning of the 1619 Project, your first essay, you introduce us to your father and and to a young Nicole. And you do a beautiful job throughout this, this series on the podcast and in the magazine, really making sure that we connect these facts and this information with humans. And in reading the book, seeing these photographs just hit even harder, especially the fact that so many of the photographs, we don't know the names of the individuals who were in these photos. Their names have been lost to time, probably because no one considered 
it to be important to record them. Yes, this is, um, you know, one of the the sad things about the American story is um, for many, many, many decades, archivists didn't think that it was important to uh, collect the histories um, and and the possessions of Black Americans. It wasn't seen as worthy. Uh, we still see that to a degree today. Uh, part of the reason that we had to do the literary timeline, this reimagining of historic events, is because Black Americans are the only people in the history of our country for whom it was ever illegal to learn how to read and write. So you don't have the richness of kind of archival text for these moments in Black history because uh, where white Americans were able to write journals and send letters to each other and write books about their experiences, most Black Americans were not. Most Black Americans were forcibly and legally uh, made illiterate. So when we were thinking about how do we talk about these historic moments, um, this is when the editor-in-chief of the magazine, Jake Silverstein, said, well, what if we have the descendants reimagine these moments so that we can still get these historic moments from a Black perspective? Um, So that is, to me, such an important part of what this book is trying to do, which is to fill in for that erasure. Um, I talk about this in my opening essay, the preface for the book, that that erasure of the Black experience of Black agency, of the Black presence, as of Black people as actors in the American story, that erasure uh, is as powerful as what we are taught. Because when we are not taught to think about these things or to understand the role that Black Americans played, we fill in that gap with the presumption that Black people haven't done much worthy of knowing. Um, and that slavery was just an asterisk to the American story, and that anti-Blackness was somehow banished um, after 350 years legal anti-Blackness with the civil rights movement. Uh, So this book is trying to force us um, to reckon with this truth by filling in um, so many of the gaps that all of us, no matter our race, uh, grow up within this country. You are also very clear to say in the 1619 Project that this is a a new origin story. It is not the only origin story. And that's something that I feel has gotten lost in in a lot of these attacks. I want to know from you, because these attacks have not just been against this project and against what people call critical race theory, a lot of it has been personal toward you. How have you coped with that? It, it's not always been easy. I I didn't get into journalism uh, to become, um, you know, a symbol. I frankly didn't expect anyone would ever know my name. I just got into journalism uh, to do the type of work that I felt was important. So to become a symbol... Um, Um, kind of a a shorthand for things that uh, conservatives don't like, um, that disparagement of of my work um, and the credibility of my work has been really difficult because, as you know, as a journalist, all you have is your credibility. If, if, um, If people don't believe that you operate with integrity 
um, why would anyone believe any of anything that you do? So becoming kind of a, a target, um, it's not easy. And especially when your family members see the things that are being written and said about you, um, the threats that are made, and it, it takes a toll. We're listening back to my 2021 conversation with Nicole Hannah-Jones. Jones grew up in Waterloo, Iowa, and she'll be back in her home state next week, where she'll be giving the 2022 Manat Phelps Lecture in Political Science at Stevens Auditorium at Iowa State University in Ames on November 2nd at 6 p.m. The lecture is free and open to the public. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. We're listening to my 2021 conversation with Nicole Hannah-Jones, the creator of the 1619 Project. Nicole, you and I actually grew up just a few miles apart physically. I grew up in Cedar Falls while you were growing up in Waterloo. And for anybody familiar with that metropolitan area, you know that in some ways we were many, many miles apart. I went to almost entirely white schools throughout all of my education. And honestly, I was in my mid-20s when I had the realization that my understanding of Black history in this country was really almost non-existent. I have spent a lot of years trying to learn about Black history, and opening up the 1619 Project was really a transformational moment for me, because all of a sudden, all of those pieces of the puzzle that I had collected over the years fit together. It gave me, as a reader and a podcast listener, just a so much clearer understanding of the country that we are all from. I'm sure you've heard this from so many people. What do people tell you about how the 1619 Project has transformed their thinking. Thank you for for sharing that um, story with me, because that is a very common experience. I mean, that was my experience when I first started studying uh, African-American history, and um, it it was transformative. I mean, that I've said often that the reason I fell in love with history was when I started to study history, all of a sudden, a world that didn't really make sense to me um, based off of uh, the explanations that we were getting in popular media, um, you know, from politicians about the landscape that we saw. Um, I was, you were right, uh, Cedar Falls and Waterloo were miles apart when I was growing up. Um, everyone knew Black people couldn't live in Cedar Falls and that this wasn't uh, a place that Black people would be welcome to. And so we didn't go. Um, and I was bused starting in the second grade out of um, my Black neighborhood in Waterloo into white neighborhoods with uh, their white schools so that I could get a good education. And I didn't understand why I had to leave my neighborhood 
to get a good education when the white students could just walk out of their house and down the street to get that education. And I didn't understand why when we got to the West side, um, they had all these businesses and restaurants and stores and nicer parks and the housing was better. And what we were told was um, black people just didn't want better and didn't work hard. And yet my family worked extremely hard. They worked at beef packing plants. They worked, um, you know, at John Deere. They did roofing. They were working very, very physically taxing jobs. Um, you know, my dad worked at when I was very young at at Raft, and he would come home. Uh, black people had to do the dirtiest jobs in that uh, in that meat packing plant, and he would come home with his bloody clothes, change, shower, and then put on his orderly uniform so that he could go to a second job. And so I knew that the narratives that Black people were just lazy or didn't want to fix up their houses were not true. And yet I had no other explanation for it. So when I started studying history, things just started to make sense. I, I learned that our neighborhood had been redlined by the federal government, making it almost impossible for Black people to get loans, to purchase homes and fix up their homes. I learned that there were, even within the meatpacking plans, a hierarchy of jobs. And Black people had the most difficult jobs with the lowest pay. Um, I learned that Black people had been kept out of labor unions for uh, most of the history of this country, meaning they were unable to organize for better uh, working conditions and better pay. So when you start to see that history, then all of a sudden the world starts to make sense. And that is the same, I mean, that is what propelled me to do the 1619 Project. And that is what I have heard from readers of all races and all ages, is that no one ever taught us any of this. And now I have a deeper understanding of, you know, why would a police officer think, a white police officer that he could kill a man in front of witnesses and have no concern that he would uh, have repercussions. Why? Why did we have an insurrection on the Capitol uh, where um, Republicans have decided that a um, legitimate election is not legitimate because too many Black and Brown people voted? Um, the history we've been taught doesn't explain the country that we live in, and. Uh, I'm trying to counter that. And people have embraced that. Um, people have been grateful for a better understanding of their country. But of course, uh, it is because people have embraced it that you've also seen uh, the intense backlash to the project as well, including um, in our home state of Iowa. So I think something a lot of people may not know about you is that in addition to being a journalist, you are a trained historian. That was what your undergraduate studies were in at Notre Dame University. And before the 1619 Project, you were already combining those two passions and getting a MacArthur Genius Grant and, and other things um, recognition for that, illuminating so many important issues in education. I, I want to ask you, though, about being a journalist and being an advocate, because I, I think that that is something that some people have a hard time understanding. You are bringing yourself to your journalism and a specific point of view. Was that difficult to embrace? No, not for me, because that's why I became a journalist. I became a journalist because I didn't feel that 
mainstream media was accurately uh, representing my community. And I didn't think that mainstream media was accurately grappling with uh, the roots of racial inequality. So I became a journalist because of my identity and because of um, feeling that as, uh, as was stated in the very first black newspaper, the Freedom's Journal, we wish to plead our own cause. No longer uh, shall others speak for us. So in the tradition of the black press, there's never um, been a pretense of uh, I'm just here neutrally to report on what's happening. Um, black people have always had to um, engage in journalism that was trying to win and um, vindicate their community's rights. And I would also say, um, I don't believe that any journalism is objective. And I don't believe that most journalism is neutral, no matter who are the practitioners. White journalists are certainly covering um, the world from a racialized perspective, just like Black journalists are. But they often don't recognize that that's how they're covering the world. Um, most of my career, I've been an education reporter. And um, when I won uh, the highest award for education reporting for my coverage of school segregation, in my speech, I talked to the room of mostly white education reporters. And I said, you haven't been covering the primary driver of educational inequality in this country, which is school segregation. You have ignored it. And that means you haven't been doing your jobs. But that's because um, most of those journalists were white women who didn't grow up in failing schools, who grew up in white segregated schools and didn't realize that was segregation, who had a very different experience of this educational uh, systems in this country, and that clouded their perspectives. So I believe that all journalism, to a degree, is activism. When you go to the Washington Post, the, the mo motto of the Washington Post is, democracy dies in darkness. That's not a neutral position. That's the belief that democracy matters. That's the belief that the journalist's role is to hold power accountable, that the journalist's role is to uphold our democracy. That's not neutral. So I think we have to um, stop talking about journalism as activism only when we're talking about journalists of color. Uh, I think journalists of color are just more honest about the fact uh, that their experience and, and their desire to build a more just society, um, that that motivates their work. But I don't know a reporter who doesn't want to do journalism that makes change. You know, you don't, you don't do investigative reporting because you just want people to know something exists. You do investigative reporting so that people will respond to the wrongdoing and make it right. Uh, a reporter who's covering child protective services, failing a child and a child dies, doesn't write that story just so the public can be informed. They write that story because they believe the children should be protected and they want the government to be held accountable. And that's uh, the work that I do is in that tradition. I'm talking with Nicole Hannah-Jones. She is the creator of the 1619 Project, now a book. And She's back in Iowa, her home state, this week. I, I want to ask you about the final chapter of the 1619 Project book. It's an essay 
called Justice, written by you. And again, in this chapter, you share little told and, and little understood stories about Black Americans working for justice. You also write about the history that we are living right now, giving it the same weight as the, the, the rest of the history that you write about in the 1619 Project, although we don't yet know what impact this historical moment will have long term. Is it important, do you think, for all of us to understand the historical weight of this moment? Yes, absolutely. Um, it is hard to uh, really assess what's happening in real time or how uh, critical uh, the moment is, but I am very worried. Um, I think our democracy is actually at a uh, inflection point. Um, what we're seeing is not politics as usual. Uh, this is not a partisan argument, but I've been reading recently a lot of experts on democracy and how democracies fail um, and what we're seeing in terms of the extreme gerrymandering that ensures Republicans uh, can retain power even if they lose the majority of votes, uh, the efforts to make it easy for Republicans to overturn elections that they don't like, uh, these anti-history laws. So the so-called anti-critical race theory law that got passed in Iowa and are getting passed all across the country are really anti-history laws. And um, historian Tim Snyder calls them memory laws. And he talks about how you see these same types of laws getting passed uh, in countries as they slide into authoritarianism because it is a way to control the national memory and the national narrative and make poor policies more acceptable. Um, I think that if you study history, uh, we're seeing something very similar to what happened when Reconstruction failed. And I'm not arguing uh, that we are in that period. You know, history never repeats itself, but it certainly echoes itself. And you didn't see the slide from um, that brief period of, of true multiracial democracy during uh, Reconstruction to uh, Black people going back into a, a complete apartheid state. Um, it didn't happen overnight. It happened one law at a time. It was a, a slow sliding. And, um, you know, the Iowa that we grew up in was politically a much more balanced state. Um, it was a much more tolerant state. It You didn't see kind of this far right extremism that um, that we're seeing now. And um, I, I can't say, tell you how profoundly disappointing it is that uh, my own state would seek to uh, prohibit the teaching of my work when it was uh, in an Iowa classroom that I uh, received the transformative experience that allowed me to have the type of success I've had. Um, so I think people need to be very, very concerned. And this is why uh, the study of history is so important, because it gives us uh, an insight into what's happening uh, at a time when you know, in the midst of it, it can be hard to figure it out. I would love for you to take us back in time to your origin story, uh, and people can read it in your book. So we'll we'll do a just a shortened version here. But you are going to be on stage with your high school history teacher, Ray Dial, from West Waterloo High School, and he's the man that introduced you to that number sixteen nineteen. Tell me what happened. 
Yes. So Mr. Dial um, was one of my favorite teachers at West. He was uh, the only black male teacher I had my entire K-12 uh, career. And he um, taught this class called from uh, called the African-American Experience. It was a one semester elective course. And um, in that one semester, I learned more about the history and contributions of black Americans than I had learned in my first 10 years of education. And I just was astounded and uh, empowered and angered. And I, um, I talk about in the preface how children presume that if something was important, you would have been taught about it. So the fact that we hadn't really been taught about Black people and their contributions at all uh, led me to think we hadn't done much of note. And um, taking that class, I, I realized people made choices, that it wasn't that Black people hadn't done anything of note. Um, it was that uh, people had made a choice to exclude these histories and these stories. And so I became really obsessed with learning this history. And I would uh, ask Mr. Dow to give me additional reading outside of class. And one of the books he gave me was a book called Before the Mayflower by Lerone Bennett, which you talked about. Um, you kind of evoked the name of that in your in your opening. And that was where I read the year 1619, Before the Mayflower is talking about the white lion, um, which landed a year before the Mayflower Yet every child learns about the Mayflower and no child really learned about the white lion. And so that was a transformative moment for me. Um, and it's why I decided to major in history and African-American studies in college. And it's why I have um, been a voracious consumer of, of history um, since then. And the other thing that I, I don't think I mentioned this in the preface is Mr. Dow is also the one um, who got my career in journalism started because I came into that Black Studies class one day and I complained about how our high school paper never wrote about kids like me, all, all the Black kids who were being bused into this school and having a really hard time. Um, our teachers sometimes discriminated against us. Our classmates didn't think we belonged there. It, it wasn't easy. And Mr. Dial told me that if I didn't like that coverage, I should join the newspaper and write those stories myself. And um, he helped me get on the newspaper uh, and so, uh, yeah, he's that one classroom is responsible uh, for so much that has happened since, which is why I'm still in touch with Mr. Dial. And it's why I really wanted him to be the one uh, to join me on stage at my old high school uh, for the talk. We're listening back to my 2021 conversation with Nicole Hannah-Jones. She is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, author, and professor. She is the creator of The 1619 Project. The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story, is now out in paperback. There's a children's book, Born on the Water. A docu-series is in progress produced by Oprah Winfrey that will be available on Hulu. Nicole Hannah-Jones grew up in Waterloo, Iowa, and she'll be back in her home state next week where she'll be giving the 2022 Manat Phelps Lecture in Political Science at Stevens Auditorium at Iowa State University in Ames on November 2nd at 6 p.m. The lecture is free and open to the public. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Today, we're listening back to my 2021 conversation with Pulitzer Prize winner Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project. We are revisiting this conversation because she'll be speaking at Iowa State University at Stevens Auditorium on November 2nd at 6 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. When we spoke last year, the book version of the 1619 Project had just been released, along with her children's book, Born on the Water. She had also just started her position as the Knight Chair of Race and Journalism at Howard University, where she is founding the Center for Journalism and Democracy, and had begun working on the 1619 docuseries being produced by Oprah Winfrey. I asked her to tell me what was next for her. Uh, Well, um working on 1619 all the time. Um, as you said, we're uh, expanding it into a docuseries. We're filming on that currently. Uh, we're also uh, going to be uh, producing at least two more 1619 books. I am uh, founding the Center for Journalism and Democracy at Howard University. So uh, I'm trying to get that center uh, established and up and running. Uh, I'll start teaching in January. And then um, what I'm really proud of is uh, I'm founding a um, after-school literacy program in Waterloo. It's called the 1619 Freedom School, and it teaches literacy through um, a Black Studies curriculum. We had the curriculum um, specifically created by uh, two master uh, educators. Uh, one is a professor at Georgetown. One until recently was a professor at the University of Missouri. And we're taking the children who are the most behind in literacy, uh, who need the most resources but get the least resources, and providing uh, a top quality after school program that is free of cost. And every student in the program, um, we are building a library for, for uh, them that they get to take home and keep. Um, so I'm really proud about that as well. In getting that started, and uh, you can tell me more about where you are, I know there was sort of a soft launch this fall, and uh, more things will be happening in January. Of course, at the same time, while this project was underway, that law that you've referred to passed the state legislature that was based on former President Trump's now-rescinded executive order targeting the idea of critical race theory, and it, it bans teaching that the U.S. or state of Iowa is fundamentally or systemically racist or sexist, and it it goes on. It's easy to find information about this if you want to know what's going on. But did that create a a chilling effect for the 1619 Freedom School? I wouldn't say uh, it created a chilling effect because it was always important that the school be independent from um, the public school system, even though we're serving Uh, children in the Waterloo Community School District, and they have been uh, a great partner with us, but we knew we needed to be independent. Um, And there was, uh, after that law got passed, some concern by the school district um, of how much they could partner with us because of that law, which I 
uh, <laughs> just find so gravely disappointing that uh, a law would make it harder for us to serve our neediest children uh, with after school programming. But this is why we don't rely on any government funds. Uh, all of the money for the school is uh, raised through private fundraising. Um, and we're not reliant on public facilities or um, um, any type of uh, public support. I know that we have gotten uh, some comments sent into funders with people asking whether we're going to be teaching critical race theory, people being concerned uh, about that, but no one has the ability to stop us from uh, helping serve our neediest children who are disproportionately Black, uh, who are disproportionately behind their other students, and who are deserving of the type of programming that we're offering. And because it is a voluntary program, only parents who want this type of um, support will sign up and we will officially launch uh, in January. You are also planning to make the curriculum available online for anyone who, who wants to help children in this way? Absolutely. Um, so our curriculum is going to be uh, made available as open source. So literacy instruction typically uh, ends after the third grade. And yet we know that all children really need ongoing literacy instruction, but children who are behind certainly need ongoing literacy instruction. And so we are going to provide this uh, as open source for anyone who will be interested in adopting it. Um, so to be clear, the, the Freedom School is not affiliated with the 1619 Project at all. That's just, this is what I am creating for my community. But the Pulitzer Center, which was our uh, academic partner uh, with the original project, has uh, created an entirely new uh, revamped curricula. They um, gave a cohort of educators early access to both the 1619 Children's Book, which is called Born on the Water, and the Adult Book. And... Um, they worked with their students and have really developed these amazing teaching tools uh, that are also free at 1619education.org. As part of your 1619 Freedom School, you're also planning to launch an, an opportunity for adults? Yes. Uh, so part of what we are going to develop is um, weekend programming and support for the parents of our students, uh, with the understanding that oftentimes students who struggle academically come from households whose parents also were not served well by our systems of education. And so we want to make sure that we are also providing um, supports for those parents and also just fun. I mean, the, what's important about this uh, program is not to make students feel like they're somehow being punished um, because they are, they are struggling to read. And um, so making sure that this is a program that looks beautiful, that makes the children feel good, where they get to have choice, um, where it doesn't feel like it's just an extension of the school day, and doing that also for families, just providing families with supports they want, but not trying to lecture to our families or, or feeling like they have uh, any obligation is really important. Uh, I've covered education for a long time, um, and I know that there's nothing about low-income Black children or low-income Black families 
that uh, makes it impossible for them to learn. These students are struggling because these students are not getting the supports that they need. And when they get those supports, um, we know that those that our students can thrive. So we are going to give them the academic support, but also the emotional support that they deserve. Our facility is beautiful and modern. Uh, we just had an amazing muralist from uh, St. Louis come in and and paint these empowering murals all throughout the school. Um, it, it is a program that does not look like the typical program that we have serving uh, low-income Black children. And uh, we know that it's going to make a difference. And that's really important to me because I've had so much success in my life. Um, but as you know, uh, the Black community in Waterloo really, really struggles. And um, I feel like I would not be doing the right thing uh, based off of all the gifts I received if I was not trying to also help my community. As I'm sure you know, Waterloo has become even more diverse over the last almost 30 years since you and I graduated from high school. Um, and it has been a, a place where so many immigrants and refugees from around the world have come. And the school community that you'll see at Waterloo West is diverse in, in so many ways now. Is this also an opportunity for low-income families from other ethnic backgrounds, other racial backgrounds, other places in the world? Or is this strictly for Black children? No, I mean, our, our school is open to any students um, who are considerably behind in reading. We may turn away students because we've, we don't have any more slots available, but we would certainly not turn away any student who has the need for this type of program and whose parents desire it. Uh, I think that it's important to say all children benefit from learning about the history and contribution of Black Americans because Black Americans are Americans. And I think that while our curriculum is based around Black history, um, any student who comes into this will learn a great deal and be empowered. And we want to support um, the needy children in our community, Black children are disproportionately amongst those ranks, but any parent whose child um, is two levels below grade uh, re in reading who wants to join the program is certainly welcome to come. We have talked about how, in spite of the fact that you are an Iowan, and historically speaking, Iowans love to celebrate their own. Um, you know, if you, if you, stepped foot here and then do something great. We tend to to talk about you as if you belong to us. And to be singled out by the state legislature and and criticized in, in the ways that you've been criticized, I, I'm sure that that has been painful. But also now here you are back in Iowa, you are going to receive the 2021 Iowa Author Award, which puts you amongst some very, very gifted authors who've received that in the past. How does this moment feel? You know, that's such um, an important question because I don't believe that uh, the governor and the legislature represents um, most Iowans. <laughs> Um, I, I think, you know, whenever I've come home to give talks, I've been shown so much love. It is always a joyous occasion. Um, I hear 
all the time um, from fellow Iowans who contact me on social media and say that they are proud. Um, people are always often surprised to learn that I'm from Iowa. Um, I talk about being from Waterloo and being from Iowa all the time. And um, you don't have to agree with uh, me politically. Um, you don't even have to like the 1619 Project. But I, I would hope we can all take pride um, in a hometown girl made good um, because that's that's what I am. And I, I just want to give back to my community. Um, and I, I just, I never come home and not feel uh, embraced. And I'm very excited to be coming home next week when we started doing uh, this, planning the 1619 Project book tour. Waterloo, Iowa is not... Uh, a place that tends to be on any national um, author's book tours. And I was adamant that we had to do a stop in our hometown, in my hometown, and um, that we had to do a stop in my hometown um, in the first leg of this. Um, it is so important for our children, particularly Black children in the state, to be able to see someone who can reflect their aspirations for themselves, who can provide them um, with a model for what they can become. And um, I, I just don't, I don't understand how anyone could disparage that, whether um, you agree with my writing or not. I have it on good authority that there have been kids at Waterloo West High School carrying around the 1619 Project, which has only been out for under a week. So... I can only imagine how you are inspiring students in Waterloo and, and students everywhere. And I read recently that over this period, over the last couple of years, you got a tattoo on your wrist that says Waterloo. Tell me what you think about when you look at that. I got this tattoo in, in 2017 after I... Um, uh, won the MacArthur Genius Grant. And I got it um, just as a reminder to always stay humble, um, that I come from a humble community and humble roots, and um, to never lose sight of that, that I might have success uh, in my life, I might uh, achieve a certain stature, but um, I put it on my wrist so that there's there's not a time during the day when I, when I don't look down and, and, uh, and get reminded of, of where I came from. And it just was to um, just keep me centered at all times. And um, I'd like to think that I, I'm the same person, the same little girl um, that I was when I lived in, in my hometown. I hope that this period, I, I've I've read your work everywhere. I've seen your work everywhere. I've heard you everywhere. I hope that you are are not burned out. I hope that you are continuing to to find energy and joy in what you're doing. Are are you okay? Yes. Good. Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> every journalist hopes. Uh, that you can do work that matters. And I think we all hope to do something that has a potential to be transformative. And um, you can't do ambitious work and not expect 
that there will be criticism of it. So I'm great. Uh, I, I just, you know, I'm in Chicago. Um, some 1,000 people came out yesterday to to hear me talk about the book. Um, people have responded to this work in a way I could not have ever imagined. And this is why I got the Waterloo on my wrist because um, I didn't come from much. And on my worst day, um, on my worst day, I don't have the struggles um, of of those who came before me. So I never lack for motivation. Um, I never feel bad uh, for long. Uh, I, I just feel extremely, extremely blessed. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, but thank you so much for your incredible work as well. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Nicole Hannah-Jones, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author behind the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The book version is now out in paperback. A docuseries is in progress and will be on Hulu. And next week, on November 2nd, she'll be giving the 2022 Manat Phelps Lecture in Political Science at Stevens Auditorium at Iowa State University in Ames. Again, that is on November 2nd at 6 p.m. The lecture is free and open to the public. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.